So today we are going to be chatting a little bit about the Vulgate. So oftentimes uh, there are two extremes that people can fall into when it comes to the Vulgate. The first is um, you'll get the people who think that the Vulgate will correct the original editions of sacred scripture, that the Vulgate, the Latin Vulgate is more important than the Greek and Hebrew originals and Aramaic originals. And then all the way on the other side, you'll get the people who think, um, and there may be a certain Catholic answers apologist who would, uh, who would say this, who think that it was merely disciplinary, the uh, authenticity of the Vulgate, which is spoken of in the Council of Trent. Now, both of these are not the traditional teaching of the church concerning the Vulgate. And I will be going over a few authors and some of the uh, texts wherein the Magisterium has spoken concerning the authenticity of the Vulgate. But before we get into that, do not forget, um, I will be going over two texts today from books that I've reprinted. Um, first one, Sylvester Joseph Hunter's Outlines of Dogmatic Theology. If you just go to christianbwagner.com slash shop, you can buy um, those and then also Copen's A Systematic Study of the Christian Religion, which is also on my website. And then remember, if you want the PDFs to those, to other books, extra articles, videos, and whatever you want, you can go to patreon.com slash militantomist. It really helps me out. And that is about all I got. So let's get right into it. Now, I collected some of these texts into a doc, and then others are going to be in PDFs. But is it untitled document? I think it's untitled document. There you go. So I'm actually going to check the comments real quick. If you have any questions or comments, Kino opening as always. What up, man? What's up? What's up, Wagner? What's up, Elijah? You are. I think you are one of the uh, one of like my oldest uh, stream watchers at this point. You were here in the early, early days. And yes, I, I did go advanced, so I decided to just copy and paste into a Google Doc. Um, so I didn't feel like going through like 10 different texts. But the first one, this is going to be what all of the later um, the later authors are going to be uh, looking back to and commenting on and trying to um, understand before the Council of Trent, you don't get much discussion. I don't, I can't, I can't really actually think of any discussion uh, concerning the authenticity of the Latin Vulgate. Um, you don't get much at all. I mean, we're going to get into Bellarmine, who, um, if anybody's going to mention it, it's going to be Bellarmine. But uh, you don't, you don't have much. It's not really um, until you get the questioning of the authority of the Vulgate um, that you get a sort of. Um, you get a doctrinal synthesis, which isn't going to happen until the, the time of the humanists. Because if you think about it, uh, before um, the Reformation, and then generally speaking, the time of the humanists, which are going to come before the Reformation. So you have uh, you have Catholics who are reading uh, Greek and Hebrew before uh, the Reformation happens. It's not you're not the reformers weren't special doing this. There there were Catholics already um, engaging in this in their commenting on sacred scripture. But if you really think about it, um, it let's say you're in 11th century uh, University of Paris, 
you're just going to kind of like say, yeah, the, the Vulgate that that was, it's from St. Jerome. Uh, we got it now. Yeah. This is going to be the, the, the Bible we use. There isn't really going to be much question until much later when we, uh, when we start to think about, um, how translation relates to the version, um, the original version, and then also how that relates to the Holy Spirit's keeping of the church. So it makes sense that uh, earlier fathers didn't really talk about this much because, I mean, why would they? So let's get into it. If anyone, however, should not accept the said books as sacred and canonical, entire with all their parts, as they are wont to be read in the Catholic Church, and as they are contained in the old Latin Vulgate edition, and if both knowingly and deliberately, he should condemn the aforesaid traditions, let him be anathema. Moreover, the same sacred and holy synod, taking into consideration that no small benefit can accrue to the Church of God, if it be made known which one of the Latin editions of the sacred books, which are in circulation, is to be considered authentic, has decided and declares that the said old Vulgate edition, which has been approved by the Church itself, through long usage, for so many centuries of public lectures, disputations, sermons, and expositions, be considered authentic, that no one under any pretext whatsoever dare or presume to reject it. So I want you to notice a few things. So first, um, there's a question which is brought up, which is, which of the Latin editions of the sacred books which are in circulation is to be considered authentic? Now, what, what, is, what is the background of this? Were there just a million different uh, translations of sacred scripture which were circulating around during the late medieval church and then now the Council of Trent has to declare? Well, not really. Uh, that's, that's not really uh, what was going on. Um, what happened is that you get during the time of the Reformation, that you have, uh, for example, Erasmus, um, you have many other thinkers of Beza. He also did a Latin edition of the of sacred scripture. You, you have a lot of these people not only doing vernacular editions of sacred scripture, but you also had people doing Latin editions of sacred scripture um, because they honestly uh, didn't really didn't really uh, like the Vulgate edition. So the the question comes up, well, what, what is what is the standard um, that we're going to have? And when it comes to Latin editions, they said that the Vulgate is to be considered as authentic. And this word authentic right here is going to become the most important word in the debate is what does the Council of Trent mean by authentic, which we are going to answer through the, uh, the rest of these authors are going to comment on that, what that word means. And now notice um, the uh, the justification is going to always be um, ecclesiological. So the church uses this in her public lectures, disputations, sermons, and expositions. This is the liturgical text of the church. Therefore, it must be uh, this, this uh, fancy word authentic. And then notice also what's condemned. Now, it's not condemned to make vernacular translations. It's not condemned to read the original. It's not even condemned technically to, uh, to read other texts. What it is condemned is it's condemned to dare or presume to reject the text. Because with, with the rejection of this Vulgate text, what you're doing is you're rejecting the church who has for so many centuries used it in her public lectures, disputations, sermons, and expositions. Because by rejecting this text, you are really making an ecclesiological statement. Because what you have to realize is that when it comes to the, um, the usage of, of sacred scripture in Protestant countries, is that Latin was, was still basically used um, after, uh, after the Reformation in the Reformed churches. They still used Latin. So when they would go and look at sacred scripture in Latin, they would basically just be using the Vulgate text. There weren't really any other texts which overtook the Vulgate text as the standard. They would be memorizing scripture uh, in Latin in the Vulgate text. They would be in their sermons and expositions in Latin be using the Vulgate text. They would have in their lectures the Vulgate text. They'd be holding dispute, um, disputations in the Vulgate text. They would, they would always uh, be using the Vulgate text. Uh, 
So that that's not what the debate is over, using the Vulgate text, but the consideration of it as authentic. That is what the debate is over. So now we're going to be getting into what it exactly means by uh, authentic, but I'm going to check, check the nothing in the live chat. Oh, man, he was starting to watch me in October. Crazy. So Leo the 13th, he says, The teacher in his work will take as his text the Vulgate virgin, version, which the Council of Trent has decreed should be considered as authentic. Notice that word again. Authentic in public lectures, disputations, sermons, and expositions, and which the daily custom of the church commends. Yet account will have to be taken of the remaining versions, which Christian antiquity has uh, commended and used, especially of the very ancient manuscripts. For although as far as the heart of the matter is concerned, the meaning of the Hebrew and Greek is well elucidated in the expressions of the Vulgate. Yet if anything is set forth therein with ambiguity, or if without accuracy, an examination of the preceding language will be profitable, as Augustine advises. Notice, okay, now we're getting, we're getting a little bit, we're getting a little bit more, we're getting a little bit deeper in the lore right here. We're getting a little bit, actually, this makes it terribly hard to read. I'm just going to just bold it. We're getting a little bit deeper in the lore right here. Because what they're saying is that while the Vulgate is authentic, yet account will have to be taken to the remaining versions, which Christian antiquity has condemned, con commended and used. So things like the Peshitta, things like other um, ancient translations of sacred scripture, which are found in, in some of the Oriental churches. These things will have to be taken account of. The, and then especially the very ancient manuscripts. But the theological principle, where we say the expressions of the Vulgate, this is something of what it means to be authentic, is that the expressions of the Hebrew and Greek is well elucidated in the expressions of the Vulgate. But then you have this yet right here. This yet is going to be very important. There may be ambiguity or even without accuracy. So... And an examination of the preceding language may be profitable, as Augustine advises. So it is okay for Catholic scholars to get behind the Vulgate and to examine the, the Hebrew and Greek texts. Because there may be ambiguity, or it may be without accuracy. But hey, Christian, how can it be without accuracy if it is authentic? That is a very great question. Because now we know kind of a little bit more of what it means to be authentic. It doesn't mean that it, there is no ambiguity. It doesn't mean that we throw away the Hebrew and Greek texts and correct them on the basis of the Vulgate. It doesn't mean that we throw away um, the remaining versions, which Christian antiquity has commended for our use. It doesn't mean any of those, th of those things. So what does it mean? So let's continue reading. We'll eventually find an answer to our question. So this is Pius XII. This is kind of the end of our magisterial texts that we're going to have. Pius XII is the last one, to my knowledge, who comments on this issue. But that the Synod of Trent wished the Vulgate to be the Latin version, which all should use as authentic, applies, as all know, to the Latin church only. Wow. And to the public use of scripture. Okay. So now we're getting even more. So this applies to the Latin church and this applies to the public use of scripture and does not diminish the authority and force of the early texts, as we saw earlier in Leo XIII. For at that time, no consideration was being given to early texts, but to the Latin versions which were being circulated at that time, among which the council decreed that the version was rightly to be preferred, which was approved by the long use of so many centuries within the church. Okay, so when we consider the text to be authentic, what we are doing is we are comparing it not to the Hebrew or Greek texts and not even to versions in other languages, not even to the early texts, which are being used. What we are comparing the Latin Vulgate to is we are comparing it to other Latin texts at that time. We're consider this is a debate which is intramural. It's within the Latin church. So this would also consider uh, certain vernacular translations that we are comparing it to. So this eminent authority of the Vulgate 
or as it was expressed, authenticity, was established by the council not especially for critical reasons. So we're not considering the fact that, oh, wow, the Vulgate has the most amazing text critical uh, apparatus. Uh, we don't even need to do text criticism. Tell the tell the NA28 commission to just uh, take a hike. No, that's not what we're saying. But rather, because of its authorized use in the church continued through the course of so many centuries. And by this use, it is de uh, demonstrated that this text, as the church has understood and understands in matters of faith and morals, is entirely free of error. Okay. So now we have our answer. This is what it means for the Vulgate to be authentic. It is in the interpretation of the church, so as the church has understood and understands, in matters of faith and morals, it is entirely free from error. It doesn't mean that there may be um, there may be errors in other instances, as we saw up here in Leo the Thirteenth. There may be ambiguity. There may be um, areas without accuracy. But in matters of faith and morals, within the interpretive framework of the Church, the Vulgate is entirely free from error, so that on the testimony and confirmation of the Church herself. In discussions, quotations, and meetings, it can be cited safely and without danger of error. And accordingly, such authenticity is expressed primarily not by the term critical, so this is very important, not by the term critical, but rather juridical. Therefore, this authority of the Vulgate in matters of doctrine does not at all prevent, rather it almost demands today, the same doctrine being called upon for help whereby the correct meaning of sacred scripture may daily be made clearer and be better explained. And not even this is prohibited by the decree of the Council of Trent, namely that for the use and benefit of the faithful in Christ, and for the easier understanding of divine works, translations be made into common languages, and these two from the early texts, and we know has already been praiseworthily done with the approval of the authority of the church in many reasons." In many regions. Okay, now we have these three magisterial texts. And notice, Pius XII, Leo XIII, these are all before uh, before Vatican II, so not like a Vatican II cope. Don't, don't bring that Vatican II cope, because I already know that's going to be brought up to me. Let me... Oh, man... Wagner, I got to show you this book related to this subject that will either make you laugh uproaringly or make your head explode. Oh, no. Oh, no. You got to send it. Send the link to it. Oh, no. This might be bad. Okay, now, Copens. Let's see what Copens has to say because this is going to be the the uh, the best one. I mean, the best... I Why did I say best one? The most concise one. I'll go... I'll, I guess I'll go easiest to hardest with how I go over the systematic theology texts. Actually, let me check something real quick. So I have another text, actually, I was going to look at. Let me see. No, that's the wrong volume. I completely forgot uh, Wilhelm, um, his dogmatic. Let me see if he actually covers it. I was going to look over it real quick. Do, 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 do. The decisions of the church on the text and interpretation of scripture. Oh, it does. Okay, good, good, good. Okay, good, 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 good. Actually, let me... Let me see. Okay. Oh, doing doing research. Right in the right in the middle of the stream, boys. We're doing research. Okay. There you go. I found it. Let me just make that bigger. Okay, this is gonna be Wilhelm's from Sheben. Okay, there you go. Let me go up. Okay, Copens. The Catholic Church watches carefully over new versions. She is mindful of St. Peter's warnings about St. Paul's epistles, 
in which are certain things hard to be understood, which the unlearned and unstable rest, as they do also the other scriptures to their own destruction. The only version which she has formally approved is called the Latin Vulgate. So this was during his time. Notice, formally approved. The Latin Vulgate, which she says the Sacred Council of Trent, believing that it should be of great advantage to the Church of God, to have it known which of the versions, Latin editions of the Bible, is to be held authentic, hereby declares that the ancient edition commonly known as the Vulgate, which has been approved by the long-standing use of the age of the churches, be considered as the authentic for the official uses of the teaching. The same council anathematizes those who refuse to receive as holy and canonical all books of the Vulgate with all their parts. All versions of the modern languages must conform to the text of the Vulgate. It must contain notes for the explanation of such passages as are liable to be misunderstood by the unlearned. They should also have the approbation of the ordinary. The English version in ordinary use among Catholics was first published partly at Reims in, the 15, in uh, 1582 and partly at Dewey in 1609. It was revised and annotated in 1750 by Bishop Chandler. Challoner. Ch I can never pronounce his name. Challoner. Okay. Easy, easy right there. Nothing, not much new. Okay, now let's see what Hunter says. 158 the vulgate there is only one there is one only version of the scriptures which has received the formal approval of the church this is that one among the latin versions which obtained general currency in the west it goes by the name of the vulgate or ordinary version as to this the council of trent declared not only that the books contained in this version with all their parts were inspired but also that among the current Latin versions, notice among the current Latin versions, this one which should be held as authentic. And as such was used by the council in proving the dogmas of the church and in reforming morals. Notice dogmas and morals. This declaration of the council is often misunderstood. Really? I have never seen that it's been misunderstood. It does not imply the entire conformity of the Vulgate to the originals, and it is perfectly allowable to suppose that the translator was misled by false readings in the manuscript that he used, or that he mistook the sense in which was before him. And notice also this was a um, late 20th century, if I remember correctly. This was done in 1892. Uh, this was written, so not no Vatican to cope from you Protestants. No Vatican to cope. Get out of here with that. The work of critically settling the text and of interpretation is not interf interfered with by the decree. As a matter of fact, the critical value of the Vulgate stands high, but it is not conclusive. But the meanings of the declaration is this that in an argument upon the question of faith and morals, there is no appeal from the authority of the Vulgate. Whatever propositions, no, notice, uh, I forgot to mention this, but matters of faith and morals, notice. And these spheres follow from the Vulgate are undoubtedly true. So matters of faith and morals, the Vulgate is undoubtedly true. It may be that the corresponding passages of the originals did not yield the same sense. This is a question for theologians to discuss. Whatever follows from the original texts as to faith or morals or any other subject is to be implicitly received as the word of God to man. But it will never be shown that the teaching of the Vulgate on faith and morals is in conflict with what we know on the subject from the originals or from other sources of knowledge of divine truth. On other subjects, the interpreter may, if he think right, discard the Vulgate, though if he be wise, he will be very slow to do so. Thus, the council leaves him free to form his own opinions as to the species of plant that sheltered the prophet Jonas. And he may believe that it was a kind of gourd, as the current Hebrew and Septuagint have it, and not ivy, as in the Vulgate. If you're based, you'll say it's ivy, by the way. This is a point of botany, not of faith or morals. And on such a point, we are not, we are sure that the teaching of the original was correct. 
but we have no authentic means of determining what that teaching was. Especially, it must not be hastily concluded that because the original text was written in Hebrew, therefore it is faithfully represented by the Hebrew, which is now current, it is possible that a casual mistake has crept into the text. Okay, now let's go down to Wilhelm. I feel like, did I have a... No. Let's go down to Wilhelm. Let's see what he says. Oh, yeah, and his sources, let me see. There's from Stapleton, from Franzelin, from Vacant, and then, um, yeah, that's it. Okay, I'm going to see if there's any. Thought alarm was going off, scared him. <laughs> no, I think that's like something cooking. Yeah, but the KJV is the authorized version by God. Kind of true. Kind of true. KJV is based. Confirmed. Okay. So the principles laid down in the preceding session were applied by the Council of Trent and the Vatican. The Council of Trent issued two decrees on the sacred text, one of which is dogmatic and the other disciplinary. These decrees, however did not so much confer upon the Vulgate its public ecclesiastical authenticity, but rather declared and confirmed the authenticity already possessed by it in consequence of its long public use. So notice, the Vulgate um, is confirmed not by the Council of Trent, but by the usage of the Church. If anyone say, says the Council, receive not as sacred and canonical the said books entire with all their parts, as they have been in been used to be read in the Catholic Church, and as they are contained in the old Latin Vulgate edition, let them be anathema. Moreover, the same sacred and holy synod, considering that no small profit may accrue to the Church of God, if it be made known, which, out of all the Latin editions now in circulation, of the sacred books is to be held as authentic, ordaineth and declareth that the said old and Vulgate edition, which by the lengthened usage of so many ages, hath been approved of in the church, be in public lectures, disputations, sermons, and expositions, held as authentic, and that no one dare to reject it under any pretext whatsoever. So that's what we heard, and give me just one sec. Okay. I'm back. So that's basically what we've heard. This is just a quotation from the Council of Trent. And now he's going to comment on it. These decrees are not exclusive. They affirm the authenticity of the Vulgate, but say nothing about the original text or about other versions. Hence, the latter retain their public and private use. No Hebrew text has ever been used in the church since the time of the apostles. But the Greek text in public use during the first eight centuries must be considered as fully authentic for that time. Since the schism, however, its authenticity is only guaranteed by the use of the Greek Catholics. The conformity of the Vulgate with the original is not to be taken as absolute. Notice, it's not to be taken as absolute. Differences in distinctiveness and force of expressions, even in dogmatic texts, so even when we're considering matters of faith and morals, there may be a difference in distinctiveness or in force of expression. Notice this is a difference in content. May be admitted and also additions, omissions, and diversities in texts not dogmatic. So secondly, so there's two classes of texts right here. Dogmatic, where we may have distinctiveness and force of expressions. And then in texts not dogmatic, or uh, we can include in that not moral, we may have additions, um, omissions, and diversities. My wife brought me uh, pizza rolls, so it's pretty based. But uh, I don't know if they're going to like. I'm always scared about uh, eating these uh, pizza rolls. I'm very scared about eating these pizza rolls on the stream because, you know, you easily burn your mouth on pizza rolls. Okay. But in matters of faith and morals, the Vulgate does not put forth anything as the word of God, which either openly contradicts the word of God or is not the word of God at all. Again, 
The entire contents of the Vulgate are substantially correct and are upon the whole identical with the original. Notice, substantially correct. Substantially correct concerning matters of faith and morals. Not against it, openly contradicting it. There you go. Notice, and then also not absolute. And the reason, where, where did it say not absolute? There you go, not absolute. Notice, again, this is um, Sheban, 19th century theologian. He's also quoting Franzelin. Um, Franzelin was 19th century. So this isn't this isn't like uh, like Vatican II liberals who are saying all of this. This is like just normie teaching of the church, like seething cope. This is just what the church teaches. Like this isn't anything like uh, like they're actually liberal. So don't cope. In demonstrating and expounding doctrines of faith and morals, the Vulgate may confidently be used, and its authority may not be rejected. It should be used in all public transactions relating to faith and morals as possessing complete demonstrative force within the church. Hence the saying, the Vulgate is the theologian's Bible. At the same time, the decree does not forbid the use of other texts, especially the originals, even in public transactions, in order to support and illustrate the Vulgate, or against non-Catholics as in argumentum ad hominem, or in purely scientific disquisitions and then clement the eighth in execution of the tridentine degrees published an official edition of the vulgate which came into general use and must now be considered as an authentic reproduction of the text approved by the council so there you go and then let me just get rid of that real quick and then we're going to look at the Oh, it is Sheepin. Yeah, it's uh, it, it's basically like a compendium that they wrote of Sheepin in English. It's just based on Sheepin's text, except shorter. So let me, and then last, the STS. Where is it? Oh, pizza rolls are so good. They're so good. Okay. So this is 1B642. And no, I can't send you the PDFs. So Article 6. On the relation of the translations to the inspired originals. Autographs. We said that inspiration extends to all the original sentences of the sacred books. Since in the apographia or copies and in the translations... The actions of God inspiring the actions of human writing is not involved directly, and therefore some errors could creep in. Therefore, there is a question as to how inspiration is related to the apographia and the translations. And then the apographia, in case you were wondering, um, it's of apo from graphia writing, it's from the writing. It's different than the autographia or the autographs. The autographs are the original texts that were written by the Authors and the apographia are the basically the manuscripts that are copies. It must be said that the apographia. Uh, why do I keep saying apographia? I've been taking too much. The apographa. I I am I'm just I'm just terrible right now. I've been studying too much Latin recently. The apographa, and the translations are inspired equivalently. And as much as they faithfully render the words and the meaning of the original text, therefore, if it is certain that the apographa and the translations are in conformity with the original text, then they vindicate for themselves the same faith that is due to the word of God. But are there some translations concerning which it is certain that they render the meaning of the original text and which we can trust absolutely? This question is of great interest to us and has always been a concern of the magisterium of the church. This is the question about the authenticity of the translations and above all, the authenticity of the Vulgate. So the notion of authenticity. So this is going to be the most important for us is. Yeah. The notion of authenticity. 
the word authentic, and this is the question we've been asking since the beginning, what the heck does authentic mean? Signifies to have value or the power to demand assent or to produce faith. It is said about a book in as much as it either really contains what is said to be or to contain it. The authenticity of a book can be original, which is found in the autographs themselves or in the original texts. And this is full and primary authenticity. So this is not the authenticity that the Vulgate has. It's not original authenticity. As distinct from this, there can be another authenticity of conformity, which consists in conformity with the original authentic thing. This authenticity of conformity can be internal, consisting of the formal agreement of the text with the original, and external, that is, according as it is recognized externally as correct, and presupposes the internal agreement. This external authenticity can be merely private or scientific and critically proved, and it can be public if it is declared by the authority of a society. This is therefore juridical authority, that is, which rightly has value for argumentation and to demand faith. The Declarations of the Council of Trent. The first indirect declaration, the Council of Trent, already from the beginning, as all understands, blah, 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 we already read this like 10,000 times. Another declaration of the same authority, authenticity direct, is contained in the following decree of the Council of Trent, declares and decrees the same ancient Vulgate edition, and then we already read this. The motives of the decree were A, that unity might be had in the multitude of the versions and the sacred books which were being circulated, B, that the council would protect the translation traditions of the church and the ancient practice of reading and using the Vulgate, contrary to the Protestants who rejected or even condemned it. This decree, as generally ex explained, is formally disciplinary, not dogmatic. For from an examination of the decree, it is certain one, that the decree is looking at practical things and agendas, not merely theoretical, namely A, to the usefulness to be gained against abuses occurring from the diversity of versions. B, the statute is restricted to public readings. Why is it not also extended to private reading if the decree is dogmatic? C, it is decreed that no one should dare to reject it. Two, the custom of the council was that in in the individual matters successfully, both dogmatic questions and questions of disciplinary reform would be treated. But before indirectly, in decreeing the canon of the sacred books, as it had been read in the Catholic Church and are contained in the ancient Latin Vulgate editions, the dogmatic decree has been made. However, the second decree can be said to be dogmatic inasmuch as it has its foundation in the preceding dogmatic decree. And also inasmuch as from it some dogmatic consequences are inferred, which will be explained below. Therefore, in this decree, the council is treating public and juridical authenticity. Remember that public and juridical authenticity that we talked about above, which has been affirmed for the Vulgate. That is, which can be used for argumentation and to demand faith in public readings, disputations and sermons. But this supposes, so notice, this isn't like what you have, the mere disciplinary idea of, oh, this was just the rules and this doesn't have anything to do with the authenticity, blah, 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 blah. Yeah, shut up. This isn't like that. But this supposes the internal authenticity of conformity. So notice, while there is that public and juridical authenticity, as we pointed out above, where is it? Right here. The external supposes the internal, and this is the um, authenticity of conformity, not the uh, that full and primary authenticity. So notice what the uh, the certain um, online apologist says about the mere disciplinary for public disputations. Obviously. It's stupid to say that it's something which is external without being gr uh, grounded in something which is internal. So there must be some sort of internal authenticity of conformity, which is present there. It would it would be very stupid to say otherwise. But this supposes the internal authenticity of conformity, 
and it is a positive privilege granted to the Vulgate, so that no one should dare or presume to reject it. The other translations are left in their own prior condition, and nothing is said about them. And then the um, the uh, right of the church to make this decree. So I don't really care about that one. But the dog, doc, uh, the doctrinal dogmatic inferences from this decree. One, the Vulgate cannot have any errors regarding faith and moral morals. And then here are all the reasons. Um, should I go over the reasons? I guess I will. Since first, since for many centuries it has been approved by the church. Since second, since the Tridentine decree is disciplinary for the whole church, the infallibility of the church in making the decree is certain. Then three, since there are no errors of faith and morals in the Vulgate is indicating the preceding decree, as the sources are known in strengthening its teachings and renewing morals in the church. In this decree, the Vulgate is declared to be authentic for public readings, disputation, sermons, blah, blah, blah. Two, the second um, dogmatic inference. The Vulgate has at least substantial conformity with the original text. For if the Vulgate is declared to be authentic, therefore this is because it has internal authenticity of conformity. And this, even if not in some accidentals, so those accidentals are going to be the type of plant like we talked about in, um, in Wilhelm, must be present at least in the substantials. And then hence it follows, A, in the Vulgate, there are all and only the sacred books. B, the totality of the sentences, or the Vulgate as a whole, which has been preserved by the church for so many centuries, is the same and contains the same thing as the totality of the sentences of the original text. But not only the totality of the sentences of the origin, of the Vulgate, or the Vulgate taken as a whole, was contained in the original, original text of scripture. Also, the individual dogmatic texts of the Vulgate, that is the text dealing with faith and morals, if they were preserved by the church for so many centuries, as to their content, were not lacking in the autographs. And also, as it seems, the definite, the definite text of the Vulgate, preserved by the long use of the church, does not express any dogma other than corresponding text in the autograph. Okay, and I think... Then, okay, and then he's gonna, um, yes, oh wait, here, there's a third conclusion, which is called, oh, thank you, oh, I have extra sweet, sweet tea, but if the agreement is affirmed between the dogmatic text of the Vulgate and the original still in modal discrepancy of the Vulgate with the autographs does not seem to be excluded. For a complete agreement of the version with the original text per se is not required in order that a version rightly be said to be substantially authentic. And this discrepancy called modal can either be regarding the more or less clarity which the truth is proposed, or also the same dogma is handled under a different aspect and formal reason. The classical example is that of Genesis 3.15, where the Vulgate has, she will crush your head, while according to the TM and according to the, that's the Masoretic text, I don't know why it's called the TM. Uh, and according to the LXX, it says he, he is the seed of the woman. Therefore, one text expresses directly the triumph of the woman, and the other text expresses directly the triumph of the seed of the woman. But there is no, really no opposition because she triumphed through her son and because of her son. And four, in the Tridentine decree, it is not said that it is not said that not even the smallest accidental error is found in the Vulgate. Such errors would be not indeed in matters of faith and morals, but in purely historical or purely scientific things like chronology, the names of plants, and so forth. The fathers at the council acknowledge these errors in the Vulgate. Notice the fathers at the councils acknowledge the errors in the Vulgate, so it's not like not like we're being like schizo modernist, like Vatican tours right here. It's not like it's not like you can use that excuse because I know I just I can, you know, the reason I've been saying this so much is I can just see see right now, the the Protestants watching this and being like, oh, well, actually, this is not what they meant to Trent. You guys are just a Martin Bailey fallacy. Like, yeah, shut up. This is what actually they were saying. 
The fathers at the council acknowledged these errors in the Vulgate, for when the decree was sent to Rome for approval, the Roman theologians objected that it seems to be surprising that the Vulgate is not allowed to be rejected in those places in which the common sense of the Hebrew text and of the Elixects do not agree with the Vulgate, or it is not well expressed in the Latin translations, and that these differences cannot be attributed to the amnesis alone or to the typographers. The legates responded, not by denying that, but by insisting on the thing that pertained to faith and morals, that the old and Vulgate edition was never suspected of heresy, and that this is the most important in the sacred books, and in accordance as the better Greek and Hebrew texts are used in the same way, they prove the readings of the Vulgate, as anyone can see, and with regard to the other passages in the Vulgate, which maybe seem to be obscure, inept, barbarous, scarcely intelligible. No one is prevented from explaining and illustrating them, whether with interpretations or annotations, or also with a new translation. Therefore, the intention was not to vindicate the Vulgate with the fullest authenticity or conformity in things that do not pertain to faith and to morals. It should also be added that the purpose of the Council in declaring the authenticity of the Vulgate was to have the support and assistance in conforming dogmas and renewing morals, therefore not for profane things, therefore in the Vulgate profane things are not declared to be authentic. And this was always the certain opinion of the eminent theologians like Vega, um, let's see, all of these guys, St. Robert Bellarmine, yeah, yeah, others. But there were also others who denied it. So for example, For example, then he goes into the objections, but I don't think we really need to. Uh... Oh, wait, no, 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 there's actually a five. There you go. It's just an objection to this one. But there were others who denied it. Um, so like when you read, for example, in Turretin, Turretin covers the, uh, the authenticity of Vulgate. He's not actually just making stuff up when he says that there were others who uh, who had like a really weird view of the Vulgate as somehow like correcting the originals. It's a really weird uh, view. So then five, in the Tridentine decree, the original text is not rejected, nor the other more ancient versions, as we've seen in others. And then, yes, as we've seen in uh, Divino Aflente Spiritu. And then I think, oh, never mind. Man, this, this section goes on forever. I could have swore there was only like three conclusions that he gives. So six, the Vulgate, which has been preserved by the church for so many centuries, can be used to make safely a dogmatic argument. Yes, as we've seen. And then on the authenticity of other texts. So, hey, maybe one time we'll uh, we'll talk about the LXX. But uh, right now, that is the Vulgate. And what did... Uh, Um, I got the SDS. Is the handbook by Sheevan worth getting? Um, let me see. Are there any? Because I'm seeing if you see Will Helm Manual. You see? Oh man. Um. Let me see. I'm just checking the version to make sure. If this is, oh yeah, this is fully typeset. Yes, I'm gonna send you a link. Make sure you buy from that link because you know, I get, uh, I get monies um, from people clicking my links. So, and then buying stuff. New world order. I'm just here to grill New World Order. No, get the actual texts, full version. What do you mean? The, I'm confused. Yes, make sure you click that link. But uh, get actual text, full version. Yeah, Sheban's not fully translated yet. If you go to, 
Uh, let me, uh, it's St. Paul's Center. I wonder if, I didn't even, I didn't even think to look at this. I'm so dumb. Um, I didn't even think to look to see if like the full version of Sheban, this section had been translated, even though they're $80 a volume, which is nuts. Uh, St. Paul Center, there you go. I don't think this section is translated though. 80 bucks a volume. Dang, guys. You are you are really uh, going off on us. Okay, I'm going to share my screen so you guys can see. Oh, he's talking about the abridged handbook. Yeah, almost no one reads Sheban. Sheban's good. Sheban's good. His um, Mysteries of the Catholic... Uh, what is it? My- Mysteries of the Catholic Faith or Mysteries of the Christian Religion? It's Mysteries of something. You'll find it. But yeah, that's good. I remember reading that. Okay, so one one. This is theological epistemology. This um, nature and scope of the dogmatic theology as a science. Yeah, this wouldn't have it. Maybe one dot two. Theological knowledge considered in itself. Nope, I guess it's in book two. Oh, maybe it's here. It's going to be on sacred scripture. On theology in the narrower sense. What the, what in the world? Man, this guy's just doing a lot about uh, theological methodology. Dang. And then five, I think, is going to be on the Trinity, right? Doctrine of God stuff. Yeah, so... Sorry about that. You got nothing. You got nothing on that. This section is not translated. But I need to get going. Make sure you look at the links below because I did link to some of these books. But um, thank you for, for showing up. And I'll talk to you guys later. Oh, remember, it's Trinity Tide. So... Worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity.